This podcast is brought to you by Killing Time Productions. Don't forget to check out Tuesdays and Saturdays, our other podcast on the network, The War Room, starring myself, my co-host Trevor Truitt, and my other co-host, Cameron Frizzell. And now, it is time for the Ark of Rock podcast, The Rolling Stones. Well, I'm a king, babe, buzzing around your hive. Well, I'm a king, babe, baby, buzzing around your hive. Yeah, I can make honey, baby, let me come inside. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? That is how you start a podcast. What's going on? I'm your host, Jared Cornelius, and today we are going to start our first big series over our first big band. And uh, I I said it, I announced it earlier this week on The War Room, Um, but yes, today is part one of a part three, possible part four podcast series over The Rolling Stones. And um, today... On part one, we're really going to focus on... The way I'm doing this series is uh, I'm really going to try to tackle this in the eras of the band. Um, you know, they've had... Uh, you know, they haven't had very many lineup changes, but the lineup changes they've had have been significant. Um, the first... I mean, I mean, the first uh, five to six years of their career, they had a, uh, a very particular sound, and it changed drastically... Uh, Whenever Brian Jones, who we'll be talking about a lot today, who this series, this episode is probably, we're going to talk about him the most because the reason why I'm doing it broken up in between like who they had play guitar for him alongside Keith Richards is because if you, I mean like if you really go along and you listen to all of their music, you'll see that um, whoever was in that position really drove the band because Keith Richards is Keith Richards. Uh, Mick Jagger is Mick Jagger, but they really needed that guy to bring a little extra something to the band that none of them had. And uh, Brian Jones, I mean, a lot of people, if you ask them if who they thought was like really the uh, the founder of the Rolling Stones, um, you know, easy answer would be Mick Jagger or Keith Richards, but it really wasn't. Um, it really was Brian Jones. So today's episode will be titled The Brian Jones Era, and, uh, you know, that's who we're going to focus on the most or that's who the fo- who the focal uh, character of this uh, series episode will be episode one episode two will come out next uh, Friday hopefully like I gotta tell you people this uh, this uh, series this uh, podcast is gonna be a real labor of love like I really thought that <laughs> I really thought that uh, fucking doing research and uh, writing and all this stuff would be easy and I'm literally writing all of this stuff like I wrote almost twenty pages like. I'm not, like, let me break it down before I get started, like, how I, like, my process and everything. I'm actually, um, I'm wanting to use books as references whenever I do these stories because, uh, I don't have access to a lot of them as of now. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm reading all these biographies that are, uh, free to read online, and I'm using my own information that I've known, and I'm trying to spin a good story and a tale and really piece the you know puzzle pieces to, uh, you know kind of piece it together for you as easy as i can and you know 
kind of keep it relative and keep it going. So that's how I've kind of been doing this uh, whole series. But this one, I put a lot of fucking time into. Okay, I can't even lie. I worked on it all week. Um, like I said, it looks like a fucking high school uh, end of the semester uh, report or exam. Like, you know, whatever. They gave you a month to write it because that's how long it is. Like, that's literally what I did. But I did it for you fucking people, all right? Because I want you to know this shit. And uh, without further ado, let's get into it. Episode one of the Rolling Stones, the Brian Jones era. So, how did it start? Well, there's only one true answer to the age-old question. Who is the greatest rock and roll band ever? Some say it's the Beatles. Other Led Zeppelin. Well, maybe it's a matter of opinion. I mean, you could probably fucking think, I don't know, the Grateful Dead is the greatest band of all time. I won't agree with you, but I mean, you can think that. But there is no denying rock music wouldn't exist as we know it without the Rolling Stones. And, you know, I wholeheartedly, that's why I'm choosing them to be the first band that I'm doing. Because, uh, you know, it was either them or the Beatles. And uh, the thing is, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones both represented two different... Like, they were two... Like, the Beatles were the good boys. Like, you know, the, you know, the sweet boys of rock. They were the faces. They were like, you know... They were, they were really like, I mean, I hate to say this, but like, they really were like the One Direction of the 60s. They were huge. They, but they, you know, you could play them anyway. The Rolling Stones were considered the bad boys of rock, you know. They were, you know, the music they played from, a, like, they, they just had two different, you know, tracks. And I'm going to really use that to uh, try to form the story of rock that I'm trying to tell. But uh, with the direction I'm going right now, the Rolling Stones would, are definitely the root of all of the, you know, rock bands to come. I mean... If I could break it down by decade, I'd say you'd have the Rolling Stones, which the Rolling Stones are still going today, everybody. I don't know if you know. I mean, I don't know if you live under a rock. The Rolling Stones are on their 60th year right now on tour and, or 58th, whatever. But they're on their 60th year together as a band. And, I mean, got to fucking, you know, take a second to pause the podcast and salute those old motherfuckers. They're still doing it. And they're in better shape than all of us listening. So, but, yeah, I mean, if I was to do it by decade, I mean, the Rolling Stones... They were the dirtiest thing in the 60s. I mean, they were... Oh, my God. I mean, they were definitely blues uh, influenced. Like, the, in the music they did, like, a lot of cut, like, their first few... We'll get into that, but, like, uh, there's just nothing else like that, especially coming out of a... The, where they were coming out of in England. Um, and they would inspire bands like Led Zeppelin. And Aerosmith is, like, the Rolling Stones on steroids. And then, like, going further in the 80s, the Guns N' Roses are, like, Aerosmith and the Rolling Stones on fucking crack answer. Like, you know, it's just, you can really, like, with Keith Richards' guitar sound, for example, you can really see the influence that he put on rock guitars to come. But anyway, back to the prop. Some say you can trace the beginning of the Stones to as early as 1949, when Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were schoolmates. But if you were going to truly mark the year the Stones came to be, You'd have to say 1962. Otherwise known as the year rock and roll truly took off. The first British invasion was about to happen in the United States and two bands were leading the charge. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones got their start playing old Chicago blues in local London pubs. So one may ask, how did this small British pub rock band go on to be the most legendary and longest running rock band of all time? It's quite a story. So let's start at the beginning and meet the band. So... Um, a big part of these series is, uh, especially episode one type stuff, I'm going to do a profile or like, you know, a few paragraphs and kind of tell the early life or even just their life leading up to joining the band, um, which in this case, these are the, all the original members. Um, 
and I'll throw in a couple of the side characters there, but like the five main guys of the Rolling Stones is who I'm going to be covering today. And then like as the next couple episodes, I'll do like one or two more profiles, probably maybe a few. Um, but I think this is a very important. And a lot of the times whenever they do like documentaries and biographies, like they don't spend a lot of time on each individual. They really like, you know, it's, I could literally do a whole series over just Mick Jagger. But like it's been done so many times. So is Keith Richards and him and Keith are going to get their their flowers. But I really want to, you know, like even I'm going to I'm going to talk about everybody in every one of these series. So let's uh, let's meet the front man of the Rolling Stones, the most known of the Stones, Mr. Mick Jagger. When talking about the best front men slash women, and you see this is a gender neutral fucking podcast, everybody. I'm gonna say men slash women. I'm not gonna. I'm not. None of you gonna send me hateful emails. <clears throat> but when talking about the best front men and women in music, it's impossible to not talk about Mick Jagger. He's been the ultimate front man for the most successful rock band in history for six decades. What the fuck have you done with your life? Widely recognized as one of the most influential British musicians of all time, Mick Jagger has also found success outside of the Stones. Apart from being a widely sought-after collaborator, he's also a successful producer and has had a huge solo career as well. Mick Jagger is, to this day, the gold standard in performance. Guys, I mean, you might think it's a little goofy watching him, but that guy, I mean, if you like, the definition of feeling the music and just really just doing what his body tells him to do, like, and the way he gets a crowd going, like, guys, I'm an Ozzy Osbourne guy till I die, but Ozzy wouldn't be the guy he was without people like Mick Jagger and like guys like Iggy Pop, who was uh, the lead singer of the of the Stooges. Well, who will, will get their own uh, series whenever we cover punk music, but um, but Mick Jagger is the guy. I mean. Every single guy to come after him, they were mimicking him. I mean, Robert Plant, all those. I mean, and, of course, Mick Jagger got hit. But, like, there wasn't a lot of guys like Mick Jagger before him, other than maybe Little Richard and uh, Chuck Berry, but nothing, not like him. But let's get into uh, his early life. Michael Philip Jagger, it's his real name, was born in uh, 1943 in Dartford, Kent, London. I'm uh, sorry, Dartford, Kent, England. Mick was a great student and even earned a spot at the London School of Economics. It's well documented that Mick Jagger and future bandmate Keith Richards were childhood friends. Adolescents would have them lose touch with their as their late teens would come. I think uh, Keith moved away and uh, they didn't meet back up until their late teens whenever they were both getting into music. Um, as a young teen, Jagger developed an interest in American blues and R&B. At the age of 14, Mick got his first guitar. Artists like Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters helped Mick develop a particular style that would become the driving force of his gritty and wild showmanship. Mick and his friend Dick Taylor started a band called the Little Blue Boy, uh, sorry, Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys. I always, like, whenever I kept reading it, I kept reading it as the Little Blue Boy, and I was like, what the fuck? And I also read it as Blue Balls for all you immature fucking assholes out there. But anyway, him and his friend Dick formed a band called Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys with Jagger as the singer. Between commuting to school from the city and playing in a band, Mick started seeing something with this rock music. <laughs> Mick started seeing something with this rock music. Mick would soon add new member guitarist Keith Richards. Uh, Keith would, you know... He, I'm pretty sure he auditioned to be in Little Boy Blue, or Mick pretty much told him, hey, you can be in my band whenever you want, because, you know, they knew each other. But anyway, let's get to Keith Richards. Keith Richards was born on December 18th, 1943, in Dartford, Kent, England. 
Keith was an only child born of Doris Maud Lydia or in uh, Nia Dupree. I think she's like some French prostitute or something. And his father, Herbert William Richards. Keith's father was a World War II vet who was actually injured during the invasion of Normandy Beach D- um, or D-Day. Um, yeah, uh, a big thing that, um, you know, I, I want to make sure everybody is aware of, like, and, like, it actually, you know, I kind of had to piece the puzzle, uh, you know, the pieces together. Um, a lot of these guys, especially with their interest in blues and why they could relate to all the uh, black blues artists of America was, uh, I mean... Look at these years, I'm saying, 1943, 1941, 1936, all these guys were children during World War II, or, like, very young, and, like, a lot of them, I mean, they probably remember having bombs dropped near them in the cities, and, uh, they grew up, and, uh, the cities were in ruin for years and years, I mean, for God's sake, uh, the city, Ozzy, uh, Ozzy and Tony Iommi and all them, and Black Sabbath are from Birmingham, that's place was it was destroyed and Ozzy grew up and I mean it it looked like uh it looked like a bomb had been dropped on there even after it it didn't wasn't like after the war was over everything was clean and everything was fine I mean that war ruined the country and uh, it took a long time for it to come back and it was a very it made the place very solemn and uh you know kind of dreary like dreary and dreadful and not a fun place to be and so like a lot of these kids growing up had to find the best in what they could and music was a huge thing and uh other than, like, mandolin music and, like, dragon-killing music, I don't know what the fuck else they were listening to in London other than, like, old folk music, but, like, I understand why a lot of the teens that grew up in the 50s uh, that were children during World War II, that uh, they grew up enjoying this music, because I feel like they could probably relate to it better than anyone um, at the time, of course, uh, I've always said the blues is like, you know, you either you, it's easy to play, but it's uh, not easy to feel, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, moving on, Keith Richards attended Wentworth Primary School, that's where Mick Jagger went, after which he went to Darth, uh, Dartford Technical High School for boys until 1959. I have a hard time saying some of these British words, they're so fancy. In high school, he was a part of the school choir and sang at the Westminster Abbey for Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah, even back then, she's still alive. She looked old then, too, I'm fucking sure. Um, to no one's surprise on this podcast, Keith Richards was an un- un- a somewhat unruly child. Keith was expelled from Dartford Technical High School on the grounds of truancy, after which he was sent to si- uh, Sidcup Art College. At Sidcup, Keith spent most of his time playing guitar. As a young boy, Keith often listened to uh, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, and Duke Ellington. Um, a lot of, like, you know, when I was reading a lot of these guys, like, you know, early musical influences, like, they were all similar, but a lot of them, uh, you know, they were different as well. Like, a lot of them brought a lo- uh, something different to the band in what they like to listen to. I mean, especially with, like, a guy like Keith Richards. Um, and, like, you know, how easy it would be to just play guitar all the time back in the 1950s like i just nowadays it's impossible to stay off your phone for 20 minutes and practices and like it is much easier to learn because you can just get on youtube and learn how to play a specific thing i mean back then you either had to read sheet music or fucking play by ear so i imagine that's what keith did a lot anyway keith would then try playing their songs on guitar you know, Duke Ellington, Billy Holiday, all those stuff, which is great music. I, I, I very much recommend you go and listen to them if you're into that old stuff. But, uh, but of all the artists Keith would love most, Chuck Berry always had his heart. 
the sound of Chuck Berry would be a huge part of what would become the sound of the Rolling Stones. Guys, I don't know if you listened to episode one or if you've been paying attention in class, but this is exactly what I was talking about and why we're doing the Rolling Stones this week, because go and listen to Keith Richards play in the 60s and listen to Chuck Berry, and you can totally tell, I mean... Keith Richards is a monster, but he doesn't exist without Chuck Berry. And in essence, the sound of the, the Rolling Stones don't exist without Chuck Berry. I mean, it's just huge. They, like, they covered a lot of his music on their early albums, which we'll get to. But, like, you know, he is just, it's huge what Chuck Berry did for the Rolling Stones. But anyway, let's move on. Um, after joining Little Boy Blue in the in the Blue <sighs> Little Boy Blue in the Blue Band. It's such a terrible name. It's a terrible name. Whoever came up with that was horrible. Um, after joining the band, Jagger and Keith spent time at the Ealing Club, as well as just exploring the emerging blues scene in underground London. Yeah, it was getting really big in the 60s. A lot of blues artists that weren't getting work in, the, in America, they would go over to London where they, you know, I'm sure it wasn't uh, much better, but, you know, they could get work. Like, uh, Howlin' Wolf got work over there. Uh, Muddy Waters was huge over there. Muddy Waters was huge for the Rolling Stones, and we'll get to that also. But, um, you know, they're walking around. You know, they're seeing what's going on in London. A lot of skinny skinny guys wearing clothes that are too small for for them, you know, because they all got those British pudgy bellies. But, uh, and they're seeing what's going on. They're hearing all these bands play. And uh, while they're at Club Ealing, they uh, saw the Alexis Corners Blues Incorporated play. They are going to be a huge part of the story going forward, considering how many people got their start playing for this band. This guy, it was huge. Whenever they were watching the Alexis Corners Blues Incorporated play, they were wowed by the play of the band's guitarist, Brian Jones. And here we are to the, to the main character of our, of our story today, Brian Jones. Real name, Lewis Brian Hopkins Jones, was born on the 28th of February. Hey, his birthday's coming up. He has the birth- same birthday as my mom. Happy bir- uh, birthday, mom. Hopefully this is out by the time your uh, birthday's out. I mean, it should be. Anyway, he was born in February 28th, 1942 in Gloucestershire, England. I don't know how to... That's hard. Um, Brian's parents, Lewis and Louise Jones, how cute is that, were of middle class stature. He had two sisters, Pamela and Barbara. His sister Pamela died of leukemia at the age of two while, while Brian was still a child. An attack of crew at the age of four left Jones with asthma that lasted the rest of his life. Which, you know, Brian was also a big cigarette smoker, so I imagine that didn't help his demise later on. Anyway, Jones attended Dean Close School from 1949 to 1953 and Chettenham Grammar School for Boys, which he entered in September of 1953 after passing the 11-plus exam. The 11-plus exam, uh, basically, uh, they have school seems like it was a fucking pain in the ass for British kids. Uh, but basically, the 11-plus exam, it's an examination administered to some students in England and Northern Ireland in their last year of primary education. Um, it's, it's like a test to see if you're ready to move on and, you know, levels in, in school or whatever. Um, it, 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 but it helps you get admission into other grammar schools and other secondary schools. Um, and they all use academic selection. So they took, they took school very serious. Um, but Brian was a very, he was a genius. Like he was a very bright person. He was very smart. And so were his parents. Um, 
He was also uh, really into sports. Brian was a uh, he enjoyed badminton and diving. With very British sports to be to enjoy. Uh, I'd never I enjoy playing badminton, but diving wasn't really like a who I could really see me doing this for you know as a career. But you know whatever, to each his own. Um, at this time, Brian just so happened to have won first chair clarinet. That's what my mom played. Him and my mom. Him and my mom and Brian Jones. Like you know, they're a lot alike. My mom was first chair clarinet. Um, but he won first chair clarinet in the school orchestra. He reportedly obtained he obtained seven O level passes in 1957, thence continuing into the sixth form and obtaining a further two O levels. He passed A levels in physics and chemistry physics and chemistry, but failed in biology. So O levels O level um uh exams were just ordinary level general certificate stuff. Um, he passed all of those, and the A-level ones were the advanced level classes, and, uh, I don't know if you heard that, but, uh, in the A-level classes, he passed physics and chemistry, but failed in biology. That was the only one he didn't pass, and that's pretty fucking incredible. So this guy had the brain of a, uh, of a physicist and a chemist and all, you know, just, but not the brain of a biologist, you know, and in Britain, if you don't have the brain of a biologist, well, you ain't got no brain at all. Moving on, Brian Jones was able to be an incredible student without having to put any effort into it at all. That sounds a lot like me. Yeah. Jones was not a fan of the regime in school and loathed the uniforms. I don't blame him, especially British uniforms. He's tr- he truly had disdain for, conform- and, uh, for uh, conformity in general. His hostility towards authority figures... Um, resulted in his suspension from school on two occasions. According to childhood friend Dick Hatrill. There's a lot of dicks in Britain, huh? <laughs> anyway, he was, uh, according to his friend Dick Hatrill, he was a rebel without a cause, but when examinations came, he was brilliant. You know, I can relate to that a lot. Um, that's how I felt I was in school. I mean, I mean, the only time I have to study is whenever I'm doing something like this podcast now where I have to force myself. But as far as, like, I could dick off in school all day and then when the test came, I'd get it, I'd pass it with flying colors and it would save my ass. You know, I didn't, I just, I didn't take the, the groundwork easy at all. I mean, uh, I didn't take it serious. I mean, sorry. Um, both of Brian's parents were interested in music. His father was a piano teacher, in addition to his job as an aeronautical engineer. An aeronautical engineer, he's basically an aerospace engineer, which uh, he was a, he was a, he worked in the development of air and spacecraft. So his dad was a fucking genius, too. His dad probably passed biology. He probably gave him a lot of shit for it. But, uh, and his mother, Louisa, played piano and organ and led the choir at the local church. That's pretty much what you're going to find a lot in these early musical stories. I mean, believe it, whether you like church or not, that's where a lot of people get their start in music. Um, I, I sang in choir at church whenever I was a little boy, and I, and I had the lead in a lot of them because, like, I was, I craved the stage. I crave a spotlight. Anyway, as a child, Jones enjoyed listening to classical music, but he preferred the blues. You'll come to learn, like, yes, Brian Jones was, like, the agent of experiment. Of a, he was the experimental agent for the Rolling Stones, but like, he was a, he was a blues purist. Like this guy, he didn't fuck around with no uh, no bullshit. He was a blues purist. Um, he particularly liked the stylings of Elmore James and Robert Johnson. Uh, Brian Jones was a badass slide guitar player, which slide guitar is a big deal of uh, the Rolling Stones' music, considering that they're so blues oriented. But like, 
if you really want to listen to a really like one of the best slide guitarists you can ever listen to, uh, Elmore James is definitely somebody I would uh, uh, recommend. I'd look up uh, the song "Dust My Broom." It's really good. Robert Johnson, uh, you know, I can explain him to. I'd feel like I shouldn't have to. This guy, he was a, literally a, one of the first guitar gods. I'll do his. Uh, I'll do a separate series on him, and uh, I'll tell the story of him. I could probably do, like, a one-hour episode over Robert Johnson. But anyway, sorry. After listening to Cannonball Adderley's music, Jones developed an interest in jazz. He persuaded his parents to buy him a saxophone. My dad played saxophone. And just two years later, he got his first acoustic guitar. Jones began performing at local blues and jazz clubs while also working multiple jobs. He was fired however for stealing small amounts of money so he could get cigarettes hey listen if i was working in a fucking club washing dishes or doing whatever the hell he was doing performing blues music i definitely need cigarettes also and they ain't paying well cigarettes ain't cheap moving forward (laughs) in the late summer of 1959 jones brian jones's girlfriend valerie corbett became pregnant and let me tell you something right now about brian jones he did not like wearing condoms let's all say that it is noted that jones pushed val to have an abortion but she kept the pregnancy and put the child up for adoption instead jones quit school in disgrace and left home traveling for a summer through northern europe during this period he lived in a he lived a bohemian lifestyle playing in the streets for money and having unsolicited sex and not raising the child he was having but after running out of money he returned to england which you know it happens uh you you move out before you're ready you know as like a stance and you know you fail everybody's gotta fail i failed shit I failed a lot. I'm sorry about my nose, everybody. It's, uh, allergies are going crazy right now. I promise I don't have COVID, you know? As if, you know, I you have to worry about me giving it to you anyway once you calm the fuck down, you paranoid asshole. Moving forward. Brian Jones was sitting in with the Alexis Corners Blues Incorporated, as did many artists at the time. Steve Winwood, Eric Clapton, uh, just all kinds of guys. All A lot of the guys in the Rolling Stones, um, including, uh... Brian, uh, Keith Richards, I'm pretty sure, he played with them as well, a little bit, but, um, Jones was sitting in with the Alexis Corners Blues Incorporated, as did many artists, whenever they first met, whenever he first met Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. Now, little did they know, the drummer for the Rolling Stones was also known to sit in with the Alexis Corners Blues Incorporated, Charlie Watts. Now, Charlie Watts is uh who rest in peace he passed away earlier this year um hell of a hell of a pocket drummer um what that means like he's just he's really good at uh he was just really good at keeping time and just keeping a rhythm and not you know there's not he wasn't busy or anything like for all my drummer listeners out there you know what i'm talking about if you don't i, I don't know what to tell you he's just he was if you listen to it, you'd think it was simple what he was doing, but like the control and the in the building of tension that that guy could do. I mean, he truly was a a jazz drummer uh, through and through. But let's get to his uh to his early life when he was still alive. R.I.P. So Charlie Watts was born in 1941 in Kingsbury, London, Kingsbury, London, England. His father, Charles Watts, you know, you that tells you all you need to know right there about Charlie Watts' father. You know, he uh, he was a very stout British man who named his son Charlie after him. So, you know, because he wouldn't have time to remember a different name. But his father, Charles, was a lorry driver for the London Midland and Scottish Railway. 
It was at a young age that Charles Charlie Watts would discover his love of his favorite music, jazz. At the age of 10, he came across both blues and jazz music. His earliest, is in, his earliest influences included the late great John Coltrane and Miles Davis. Miles Davis is one of my favorite jazz musicians ever. He's fantastic. He has a really cool documentary available, I believe, on Netflix called Miles Davis, The Birth of the Cool. Go and check it out. It's very, very good. Um, and by the age of 13... Charlie became more interested in drumming and would be and would emulate his jazz heroes playing by converting an old banjo into a snare drum. So I did this a lot as a child. I would use pots and pans and I'd make drum kits with them. I'm sure a lot of you guys did too if you're into music. Um, but yeah, he was listening to some pretty intense stuff uh, to be trying to emulate, you know, those kind of drummers at that age. But uh, I love that he used an old banjo and he put it into a snare drum. I always thought that the bar- the, the base of the banjo looked like a snare drum, so that's cool. Alongside his childhood friend, Dave Green, who became a jazz bass player and remained Charlie's friend. Oh, sorry, Charles' friend until his unfortunate death just into this last year. Dave Green played on everything that Charlie Watts did outside of the Rolling Stones. I'm pretty sure Dave Green was his bass player. I mean, if he wasn't in the, if uh, it was either Bill Wyman or Dave Green or whoever, you know, Dave Green was like his best friend until the day he died. But anyway, um, they would listen to music together that included 78 RPM records of American jazz legends like Charlie Parker and Jelly Roll Morton. Um, yeah, 78 RPM records, I'm pretty sure it was just a size, um, you know, so it's probably, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, you, uh, you might want to look that up and see, uh, I would look that up yourself, I don't know why I didn't write that down, but, um, I'm pretty sure that was a big deal to be able to have a 78 RPM record. I understand that, like, not well enough to explain it anyway, but Charlie Parker and Jelly Roll Morton were... Were, are, I would go look them up as well, especially Charlie Parker. His music is fantastic. Super, like a huge jazz legend. Um, which, whenever I, I feel like I'm running stale on rock bands, I might do like you know, you know, pop, like solo episodes. I'll do. Uh, I'll start doing a, a second episode a week over something. I can do a wrap up in one day and not have to do a whole series and save the series episodes for Fridays. But um, Moving forward, in 1952, he joined the Tyler's Croft Secondary Modern School where he studied until 1956. During his school days, he was a sports enthusiast playing football and cricket while also showing a taking to art. I cannot imagine Charlie Watts playing football. I can imagine him playing cricket, but football, he was like literally, he was like a skeleton with one layer of skin all over him. Like he was a skinny guy. Um, but after leaving, he joined the Harrow, Harrow, whatever British pronunciation, Harrow Art School, um, modern day Westminster to this day, and studied there until 1960. Um, in 1960, he joined Charlie Daniels Studio, not the Devil Went Down to Georgia guy. Um, his, I'm pretty sure it's, uh, I, I'm not sure who, Char- I've, I, cause I, whenever I saw that, I was like, Charlie Daniels was a studio producer? Anyway. Um, it's an advertising company as a graphic designer. Um, so Charlie Watts, he was a uh, he was a graphic designer. Um, I'm sure a couple of y'all out there do it. My uh, the guy that built the War Room website. Shout out to you, Dalton. Um, thank you. Uh, good luck with your career in that. Uh, I'm gonna come to you for a lot more work. There's your little shout out for you right there. Um, but during that time, he got associated with the local bands that would see him perform in local clubs and coffee shops. Um, 
Watts actually got his first drum kit in 1955. He started playing live with his friend Dave Green around 58 and 59. He started playing in a Middlesex, Middlesex, that's the name of a place in, in, in London or England or whatever. He started playing in a Middlesex, uh, I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Middlesex. He started playing in a Middlesex jazz band, the Joe Jones All-Stars, terrible name. While working as a graphic designer, he accepted a proposal to join the Alexis Corners Blues Incorporated. It's a mouthful. I know I've said it a lot, but it's, it's important. He joined them in early of 1962, of which he'd play for about nine months total. Um, a couple, like, you know, off and on. Um, Brian Jones, Keith Richards, and Mick Jagger would often visit R&B clubs in London, and during one such visit, they visit, they met Charlie Watts. Originally, Watts actually turned down an offer to join the new Rockfit, new Rockfit, the new rock outfit, the Rolling Stones, which was named and formed by Brian Jones. That's very important to remember. Brian Jones was actually the, um, he was the, he named the Rolling Stones. He brought them together, and he was the reason that they formed together as a band the way they did. But um, Charlie Watts would eventually accept the offer in early January of 1963. So he made him wait a year. <laughs> anyway, so at this point, we've got the singer, Mick Jagger. We've got two guitar players, Keith Richards and Brian Jones. And we've got the drummer, Charlie Watts. All they need now is the bass player to really complete the stones. They would find that bass player. And Mr. Bill Wyman. Now, Bill Wyman is a bad motherfucker. That's all I'm going to say about him. He's a He was a highly sought-after studio blues bass player because he's just... That's what he is, man. Like, you play, he, he just picks up where it is. You don't have to tell him anything. He's just one of those guys, as most bass players are. Um, Bill Wyman was born as William George Perks Jr. in London, England on October 24th, 1936 to parents William Perks and his wife Molly. 1936 this guy he was fucking he was old he was a little he was about i mean i think charlie watts is the second oldest and he's about five years younger than bill wyman and bill wyman's still going he's still out there today um he had four siblings and and uh his father was a bricklayer struggled to make fam uh make ends meet yeah i met like i said uh he was probably a bricklayer rebuilding He was rebuilding all the buildings that were destroyed during World War II. It's it's horrible. But Bill showed an interest in music at an early age. He began receiving piano lessons from age 10 to 13. He'd play piano here and there, too, going forward. Um, He attended Beckenham and Penge County Grammar School from 1947 to 1953, but left before the GCE exams. Later on, Bill Wyman enlisted in the military and began serving in the armed forces in the British Royal Air Force in 1955. He was posted in Germany, where he first heard rock and roll. The American Armed Forces Radio played the songs of Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, and Fats Domino, which greatly influenced him. Um, I can imagine, like, uh, we haven't talked about Fats Domino very much, but... Uh, you know go look him up and you'll see like he he was a big part of it also i I will say he was a huge he was a big character um bill wyman returned to england after his discharge with a renewed passion for music while working on honing his musical skills he worked many odd jobs to pay the bills god working one job sucks all these guys work multiple jobs it's insane but he began playing gigs around town with the bass as his instrument of choice 
He also adopted Bill Wyman as a stage name in honor of his friend. I couldn't find anything about it. It's a weird name. I mean, it's not like his name is fucking Thunder Dragon 5 or something. It doesn't make any sense. But it was during this time that Bill Wyman formed a band with the original drummer of the Rolling Stones. In 1962, Bill Wyman auditioned as the bass player for the Rolling Stone, which he would be a member of from 1962 until 1993. 31 years in the band. Um, I know Bill Wyman kind of had a short little bio. There just wasn't very much about him. I've read, I've read, and i read. He just, you know, he was, uh, grew up in a poor family, got into music early, and then went to war. <laughs> went to war whenever he was, uh, what would that make him, 19? So he was, you know, he had a very, uh, not a very eventful young life. But now, hey, look where we're at, everybody. We've got all five members of the bands are together. Um... They formed the the original five. We've got Brian Jones, Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, Charlie Watson, now Bill Wyman. So let's get into uh, let's get into the music. Um, the Rolling Stones had officially formed completely with former member turned road manager and band manager Andrew Lug Oldmond. The Rolling Stones were on their way to becoming the Bad Boys of Rock. The group's wild style helped them land a deal with Decca Records. Jagger was a key ingredient to the band's growing success, attracting audiences with his stage antics and sex appeal. Now, let's look at the music they recorded as a as a as a band, like whenever Brian Jones was in the band. Um and th- they recorded music together from well, you can find stuff uh, recorded with Brian Jones in the band from 1964 to 1968, but like they'd been together, they were together for six years while he was in the band, and they put out um, ten studio albums together. I'm not gonna go over the live albums right now. Um, there's just too much. Uh, I mean, a lot of it is, you know. Anyway, um, sorry. <laughs> but during the Brian Jones era, the Rolling Stones released ten studio al- albums together. These albums include. The Rolling Stones, self-titled debut, big power move by many bands. Um, 12 by 5, The Rolling Stones 2, The Rolling Stones Now, Out of Our Heads, December's Children, Aftermath, Between the Buttons, Their Satanic Majesty's Request, and Beggar's Banquet. Um, The first four albums released by The Rolling Stones were mostly covers of blues, country, and R&B songs. These albums are definitely still fantastic. I mean, they're still great. They're they're precursors to the Rolling Stones' future style. I mean, that song I opened with, uh, which uh, I'm building a playlist, uh, Killing Times production playlist that I'll release one every month um, of all the music that we've uh, included. We don't have the rights to it anyway. <laughs> but um, it, it, you can see where they were going and they, what direction they were heading into. And it, it, whenever they started getting experimentals, whenever they really, uh, you know. It's whenever they really create the sound in their own style. You know what I mean? But um, their first four albums, The Rolling Stones 12 by 5 The Rolling Stones 2 and The Rolling Stones Now, they were mostly covers of blues, country, and R&B songs, which, you know, that's how a lot of people are. Um, but uh, while these albums are basically blues cover albums, there are still originals hidden in these albums. Uh, congratulations. Like, you know, con- there's a song, Congratulations, and Tell Me great original rolling stone stuff but uh it was the the album the rolling stones now that was the band's biggest step towards becoming rock and roll's biggest band on earth 
they had one of their first big hits with their cover of Howlin' Wolf's Red Rooster. You remember? Huh? You remember from episode one? Remember? 1965, Red Rooster. That was one of their first big hits in America. Um, at the time of the formation of the band, Keith and Mick took charge of the creative process of the band. They also became a good songwriting team. Well, fucking did they ever. Um, this would lead to the band's long-term success, obviously. I mean, they're still going. Early on, the band released music under the pseudonym Nanker Felge. Uh, it's like one of those weird things that British people do. Uh, they like to release content uh, under different names. So they make them seem all mysterious. The Stones did shit like that. They're like in the 80s, whenever Ron Wood was in the band, whenever they got tired of being the huge Rolling Stones, like they would go play like nightclubs, charge $10 a ticket under the name The New Barbarians, which you, you can look them up. It has Ron Wood, Keith Richards. It's fantastic. It's just the Rolling Stones under, under a different name. But, um,. They they became a really good songwriting team, obviously, uh, and because they took over the creative process, because Brian Jones definitely he wasn't a great leader. You know what I mean? He wasn't. Uh, he named the band. He's a lot like me. He names the band and does his thing and goes for it and you know expects everything to go great. That's what he does. You know, Keith and Mick are their idea guys. What do we got to do next? We got to keep this thing rolling. We can't go stale. But. Uh, Early on, the band released music under the oh sorry, the Stones first made the British charts the British charts in 1964 with a cover of Bobby Womack's uh, song "It's All Over Now." Oh, beautiful song by both bands. It's fantastic. Um, but now we're gonna get to the album that really like. This is like when the Rolling Stones became the Rolling Stones. Like it still had cover songs on it, of course, but like. This is like the most rolling. This is probably the most Rolling Stones album there is. Like, if you had to like say what, like, you know, if we went off of like what it sounded like and what other song to, you know, describe like this uh, to describe this album and how big it was for them. Um, the album I'm talking about, of course, is 1965's "Out of Our Head," and the biggest song to come off of this album would be. That's right. I can't get no satisfaction. Um, it's one of their best songs. I will say, whenever I was uh, younger, I used to hate that song because it was, you know, I, I didn't get it. I get it now, and I think it's fucking great. It's just, it really is. I mean, when they really get into it, it's it really is just one of the most fantastic songs ever. Um, but we'll get to that. Uh, that was just a little snippet of that. Um, but... Let's get into the what went down behind the recording of Out of Our Heads. When the Rolling Stones came to Chess Records in Chicago in the summer of 1964, they were met by a middle-aged Muddy Waters. Ho, 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 Muddy Waters is a, I'm a hoochie-coochie man. Oh, my God, check him out. Um, he was a figure so important, they actually named themselves after one of his songs. Go check it out. It's, it's great. Um... This album was a project that the Stones deemed reparational. They wanted to give back to the black musicians they loved and rec and, and give them the recognition they felt they deserved. And also, a lot of the money for the, for this album went towards a lot of those black musicians. Uh, Willie Dixon, 
uh, Helen Wolf, Muddy Waters, a lot of those guys, uh, like they were, this was their, like this was huge, um, in the 1960s for like a, a band of white guys to really do this and like, you know, be like, Hey, look at these guys. Like we're not here about these fucking guys and you all disrespect the fuck out of them. And the Rolling Stones, that's what this album was. It was a project that to give back to those that made it possible for them to be where they are. And, you know, I just think that's great. But anyway, it was released in July of 1965. Um, Out of Our Heads is the album that shot them into the atmosphere. The album was recorded at Chess Records. This, uh, that's where Chuck Berry and Little Richard, that's the record label they were under. Um, and this record truly was a pivoting point. Um, they were still covering blues, uh, Marvin Gaye's Hitchhike, Sam Cooke's Good Times, and Solomon Burke's Cry to Me. Oh, man, the Hitchhike, is it's great. Um, they also were discovering their own identity, folding in hits of country. Uh, check out Spider in the Fly. It's probably my favorite song in the album. Uh, English Folk. Uh, look, check out the last time, and then uh, Rockabilly, uh, Mercy, Mercy. Uh, the whole album is fantastic. Side one and side two are both great. But then there was I can't get no satisfaction. This song really captured the attitude that just ten years later would be considered punk. I, I you know, it's the '60s. I mean, that was probably the most aggressive thing to come out at that time. Um, but they wanted to make more. Uh, music uh, from music of life and like on this song they they really they wanted more from music and life they they were saying like just read the lyrics the next time you listen to it and just like they're like they're telling you you know they want more they're ready for more like they're growing up you know they're getting out there um and they just they want more from life i can't i, I can't describe it any better um the next two albums uh, December's Children and Aftermath uh, would see the Stones really start exploring outside their roots. Thanks widely to Brian Jones being the diverse musician he was. He started in the band playing slide guitar, rhythm and lead, of course, but as he also played organ, the sitar, and a wide variety of other instruments. He was the multi instrument he was the multi instrumentist in the band, if that's a word. Um, these experimental uh, these experimental songs like in in their style really took form first on Between the Buttons, but even more so on the nineteen sixty seven album Their Satanic Majesty's Request. Going back to um, December's Children, I uh, I don't wanna skim over these uh, albums because I can't like I you know, I want to really, um, I don't want to, like, act like I'm not going, but, like, a lot of those, a lot of those albums on the beginning, like, I can't recommend them enough, but, like, it's, like I said, they're blues covers bands, and, like, covers, they're just covers of old rock band, like, Chuck Berry covers and stuff. I really want to focus on this, but, like, December's Children, um, Get Off of My Cloud is a huge, is a fantastic song off of there, um, As Tears Go By is good, Blue Turns to Gray, um, it's, it's like a musical junk drawer, ju- I'm sorry, junk drawer packed with, like, just like, you, you never know what you're gonna get on that album, because, like, they were still covering stuff, but Aftermath, the UK release, um, the song Under My Thumb is one of my favorite Rolling Stones songs, Take It or Leave It is great, uh, just go and, I would, like, after doing this, I hope it inspires you to go and listen to their music catalog, but Between the Buttons, um that's got ruby tuesday she smiled sweetly backstreet girl connection like it's who's been sleeping here miss amanda jones uh it, it's one of their better like albums and you can see them really starting to evolve as a better band 
but uh, coming into 1967 is whenever the Rolling Stones really started to, uh, you know, let's get into it. Anyway, 1967, their Satanic's Majesty Request. It is a very metal album name. I will say that. Uh, go and check it out. It's really cool. Um, I'm pretty sure like Aleister Crowley's on there and shit. Anyway, but anyway, it's really cool. I want to own it on vinyl. But in 1967, it was a huge year in count for counterculture, the hippie movement, of which the Stones were smack dab in the middle of. This truly was the time of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, all of which would get the Stones in trouble, which, hey, <laughs> we've, we've all been there. Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> anyway, I wish I could tell you the story of rock without mentioning the effects drugs had on it, but the reality is drugs make great music. Whether you believe in it or not, most music you listen to was influenced by some kind of substance. It's not always coke, heroin, or booze. Sometimes it's LSD, weed, or pills. Drugs and music go hand in hand, and the 60s are an example of that. I mean, guys, where you been? Uh, whenever someone says the 60s, I immediately think of some long-haired, smelly hippie tripping on acid, smoking a cigarette, being in the way of somebody trying to go do something productive. That's what I think of when I think of the 60s. And also, um, my claim of music and drugs go hand in hand. Uh, listen to the fastest of jazz, jazz. All those guys were on coke and speed. Uh, blues. Uh, listen to the slow, like the emotional feelings of it and everything and how like euphoric it is. That's heroin. All those guys were on heroin. I'm telling you. Go watch Ray. He'll freaking show you whenever he was on speed. He was wanting to play faster music. Whenever he was all heroined out, it was all... Like that slow, feel-good stuff. But, like, music and drugs have always gone hand-in-hand. And, like, it never did they meet more than in the 1960s. Uh, we're going to get into a lot. But, like, psychedelic rock started in the 60s because of guys doing LSD and other psychedelics. And punk music was all driven by speed. And, like, a lot of the, like, drugs have, or they just, like I said, they go hand-in-hand with music. And they make, and then, unfortunately, it makes great music due to the inspiration of it. But... And in no way is the Arc of Rock podcast or any podcast on Killing Time Productions endorsing the use of hard drugs. Thank you. I had to get that out. My lawyer told me I had to uh, had to disclose that. Anyway, moving on. 1967 was a wild year for the Rolling Stones. Members of the band's drug problem had gotten out of hand, and in some instances, it even got the Stones into legal trouble. From 1966 to 1970, Mick Jagger was in a relationship with Marianne Faithful. One night, while at Keith Richards' home in London, the two were among those arrested during a police raid. During the search, the police found drug paraphernalia and illegal substances. Both Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were tried and convicted of drug charges. Fucking bullshit. Who the hell? Imagine being the guy that arrests a rock star and give him drug charges. It's fucking lame. Let him go. You just give him a slap on the wrist. Anyway, but the charges were later dropped after an appeal to the court. But that wouldn't be the end of it. It never is. You, like, give them a slap on the wrist and they come back. See, I just contradicted myself. Anyway, just two years later, Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful were arrested during a raid of Mick Jagger's home in London. All of this could be reflected through the music the Stones were making at the time. And with that, we've got their Satanic Majesty's request. So, like, guys, on this album, it's... You know, whenever I said Out of Their Heads is the most Rolling Stones album there is, well, this album arguably could be as well, like, especially during the Brian Jones era. Um, And you could also, I mean, 
just going through it together, if you listen to it, it's it's almost like a Pink Floyd album. It's insane. Um, She's a Rainbow is fantastic. Uh, Citadel's great. And also, though, the thing is, if it's not as it's not, they're probably their most least rock album that they did with Brian Jones, because um, it's very experimental. The drugs they were taking, um, and when they recorded this album, they were barely in the studio together. Whenever they did, it was mostly like you know, it took over a year to record as well. So, um, yeah, I just like. I can't explain enough how big this uh, album... And then also, this album had a huge impact on the counterculture as well. Um, you know, this is like one of those hippie fucking archive albums right here. I mean, like, if, they, if you were smoking weed and being a groovy person back then, you had to have this album just because the way it looks, man. But now, we're going to get to one of my favorite Rolling Stones albums and what would be the last album recorded with Brian Jones in the band or while he was alive. It's getting fucking real here, people. Anyway. Beggar's Banquet. The end of the Brian Jones era. Towards the end of the decade, the Stones were the biggest band in the world. They invented what it was to be an arena rock band. I don't give a fuck, Beatles listeners. You played Wembley Stadium. The Rolling Stones were playing stadiums left and right because of the show that they put on. Like... And they weren't just bringing 12-year-old girls there either. The, the Rolling Stones have always been the biggest band on earth. I don't give a fuck what anyone says. Um, and also, during this time, they had released a string of epic albums leading up to what would be the follow-up to their Satanic Majesty's request, Beggar's Banquet. Beggar's Banquet is such a huge turnaround from their Satanic Majesty's request. Um... Like, their Satanic Majesty's Request was a very spacey album. That's what I was trying to explain earlier. Um, And listening to this album, Beggar's Banquet, come out right after, is like literally get it was like shock therapy. You would never expect, like, there was, they, the Rolling Stones were always evolving and like being, trying their best to be different. This was like them coming back to their roots, but like, it was, it just came up with a lot of incredible, um, like, original music that they would come up with, like, it was, the band, like, they were, they sounded mad, it was like, it's like a, it's like a, it's a great counterculture album that captures a completely different, like, vibe, if, basically, if their Satanic Majesty's Request captured the drug part of the counterculture, Beggar's Banquet captured the, uh, you know, the injustices and the protest, like, if you were at a protest, you could hear a lot of these songs being played there, I'm sure, it's a very angry sounding album, especially coming from the Rolling Stones, um, I don't know if you were listening to episode two of the War Room, um, which War Room will, uh, episode three will be released this Saturday, tomorrow, hopefully, um, but Stray Cat Blues, the Rolling Stones hadn't ever put anything out like that, that was as, like, powerful as a song like that, and especially the rest of the album, I mean, like, uh, Mick Jagger at this time was going to Vietnam protests in London, um, but he was really inspired by the unrest in Paris that, you know, that helped him write the music for the song. They were, they weren't super political, the band never was. Politics had been sub- uh, sublimated in the, in the music, who's punching, you know, and I don't know, it's, it's, it's very, it's very hard to explain I mean, unless I started a podcast about uh, the 60s counterculture movements and hippie movements and protesting and how they actually probably used to work. Um, eh, but anyway, uh, 
Moving on, like I stated earlier, the drugs and partying had gotten out of control, but none worse than Brian Jones, which that's saying a lot, considering that Keith Richards is fucking alive still. Jones had become a huge alcoholic and had had a a bad drug habit. His performances were sloppy both inside of the studio and on on stage live. This led to a diminishing role in the band. So, Brian Jones, like I called him earlier, was like the experimental agent of the Rolling Stones. Um, He played like uh, on Paint It Black with the sitar and all the other cool weird instruments that were played in the band and that drove their music, especially on TSMR. It was huge for the band, like, he was a huge part of the sound leading up to Beggar's Banquet before his drug problem became, you know, got really bad out of control. And his and it led to his role, uh, really, basically, like, it, was, it was very condensed, especially on Beggar's Banquet. He wasn't, like, super a part of the band album, and, you know, it really caused a rift with the Rolling Stones, but, uh... You know, he was huge behind the psychedelic music the Stones would make. One could say TSMR was Brian Jones' masterpiece. But as the drugs and booze took over, that role was condensed. He wasn't very present on Beggar's Banquet at all. I didn't have to explain any of that. I could have just read what I wrote down to read anyway. (laughs) But Brian's spiraling drug problem had caused a strain on the band, and Brian Jones was dismissed from the Rolling Stones. This devastated Brian, obviously, and it only sent him, like, like it sent it basically threw him off the top of a building. Less than a month later, Brian Jones died at his home after drowning in his own pool at the age of 27. This naturally caused a lot of questions about the band's future. The Stones were in need of a new guitar player, and Brian Jones, the founder of the Rolling Stones, was dead. And that's where we're going to stop this week, ladies and gentlemen. Part one of the Rolling Stones. That's it right there. Um, like, a lot of this was, like, laying the foundation going forward. Uh, my favorite part is about to come. Their best string of uh, albums, in my opinion. Um, and I'm going to try to decide whether or not I'm going to make this a, a, two or, a three or four-parter. Because uh, the Ron Wood era can kind of... it's. It's very long. He was he's been in the band for a very long time. But next week we'll be going over the guy that would. Uh, I'm not gonna say who replaced him. I'm gonna make you wait till next week to find out who replaced him. It's a, it's a big deal. But uh, anyway, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Arc of Rock podcast. I've had a lot of good feedback. Um, so far, no bad, no uh, negative feedback. Maybe not not enough people have listened, or they aren't being honest with me. But anyway, um, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, don't forget to check out the War Room uh, releases on Tuesdays and Saturdays, as well as this podcast, which comes out hopefully every Friday or Saturday. Um, I may start doing a second episode a week, just to kind of keep content coming out i want to make sure i'm staying out there and you guys are staying in touch with me and everything you know what i'm saying but uh anyway i'm gonna leave you guys with some music um like i said thank you for being a part of uh, the arc of rock hopefully i have some merch for y'all soon um i think i've got a really badass um logo and i think it would look really good on a t-shirt or you know a sweatshirt which i love sweatshirts i love hoodies too but you know who gives a fuck but anyway That's going to do it for me, everybody. Uh, Join me next week for part two of the Rolling Stones.